Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will welcome everybody to the Olympic edition of Tennis Channel Podcast Network's KickServeRadio.com. I'm Andy Zoden, and I am joined by seven-time Grand Slam champion, former world number one Matt Svelander, two-time Texas Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine. There's so much that I want to get to tonight, guys. We're in the midst of the Olympics, and, and Johnny, I'll start with you because I don't know that we're going to see a better Olympic moment than our future Longhorn-to-be, Lydia Jacoby from Seward, Alaska, winning a gold medal in the 100-meter breaststroke, shocking the world. They showed the kids in her high school going absolutely crazy. She's from Seward, Alaska, and she's a swimmer. Matt's asked a question, where do you learn to swim in Alaska? Well, this kid certainly did. She's a gold medalist. It might end up being the best moment in the Olympics, and she will be attending the University of Texas in the fall, so that's very exciting. So if you'd like to comment on that, Johnny, how exciting is it for us to have an Olympic gold medalist, 17-year-old Lydia Jacoby, going into Austin in the fall? Love hearing about that. Always uh, support the UT folks, um, the, the athletes, and and they've always had great swimming. So it doesn't surprise me that she's headed to Texas, and uh, we can claim our first gold medal, right, Andy? Absolutely. Very exciting. As we talk about Olympic tennis, let's let's start out by going back in time because we all know that Novak Djokovic is there in Tokyo and he is trying to accomplish for only the second time in the history of our sport the Golden Slam. As we know, Steffi Graf did this back in 1988. Novak Djokovic, as everybody knows, has the Australian, the French, and now Wimbledon in the bag. He'll try to win in Tokyo and then he'll try to win in New York. Now, let's look back at the 1988 games in Seoul, South Korea. Well, I'm going to check with you guys and see if you know a little bit about what happened. First of all, Johnny, how did Mats Wielander do in the Olympics in 1988? Do you remember? Mats, I apologize. I don't know that result. Maybe you're happy that I don't remember. (laughs) Mats, how'd you do in the Olympics in 88? Well, I mean, I was coming in as the being ranked number one in the world. I just won the U.S. Open. Uh, I went down to Palermo, Sicily, and won another uh, tournament on the Grand Prix Tour. I beat Kent Carlson in the finals. And then I decided to not go to Seoul, Korea, to the Olympics. I'm not sure what I cited. I think maybe I cited that I was tired. But that was the first year that tennis was allowed back in uh, as a sport, 1984 in Los Angeles, it was a 21 and under. It wasn't an official sport, ah. but it was in 1988. And I still, to this day, um, not sure if tennis should be in the Olympics okay. uh, until they actually figure out that everybody wants to go. Uh, everyone, one, two, three, four, five, up to the top 20 in the world, they all want to go. And that's not the case. So I know tennis is tough because the schedule gets really squished. Uh, in in the middle of the summer, but um, I'm not sure they should. For example, there's still tournaments going on on the ATP Tour the same week as the Olympics. I mean, can you show, tell me show me another sport where they have tournaments going on in track and field or swimming or diving? No, there's not. In tennis, we have tournaments in Atlanta uh, going on, for example. And I just think that the, the the organizations, the ATP, the Olympic Committee, the ITF, they really need to get on the uh, on the same page when it comes to what does the Olympic mean for tennis or what does tennis mean to the Olympics? I think tennis means a lot to the Olympics, but I don't think the Olympics means a whole lot to the tennis players unless you go there and you actually bring a medal home. Then it's bigger than most probably any other thing you do in tennis once you are at our age. When you walk down the street in the mid-50s, they'll know you won a gold medal. 
I believe I have the answer to what would make Olympic tennis a successful endeavor. I really, truly do. I think it would be a matter of making the event and formatting the event so that it's different than any other major tennis event that we have. And what that would be is a team event. Every country plays as a team. And you have the Davis Cup, you have the Fed Cup, so you can't do it like that. What I would suggest is a co-ed, if you will, five-on-five, five five matches, a men's singles, a ladies' singles, a men's doubles, a ladies' doubles, and a mixed doubles match, a best-of-five team tournament, United States versus Australia, Sweden versus Russia, Serbia versus Spain. It kind of like a a little bit of an expanded version of maybe the Hopman Cup, I guess is what the closest thing would be. And I think that would I think that would win over tennis fans because it would be a unique format. Matt, what do you think? World Team Tennis. We're doing it at World Team Tennis. But not at the same time. I'm talking about five matches on five courts at the same time like a college match. Johnny, you experienced college tennis at the highest level playing at the University of Texas. How did those moments in your career compare to some of the moments in your pro career? I got to believe that playing for your school with your teammates alongside of you on either side of you, as you were always on that middle court as our number one player had to be an amazing burst of adrenaline. I think it's a great idea, Andy. I think you really are onto something here. What camaraderie that would create for, for all the athletes and all the countries. And I think um, a format like that would really bring men's and women's tennis together. And, and, and it could actually potentially help create a tour where it's both men's and women's. I, I just think it would be amazing. I think you watch world team tennis played and um, you know, everyone gets so into it and, and they love rooting for each other. And I think it's a team spirit and the Olympics really is about team in a lot of ways. And uh, I think that would work. Yeah, I agree. You've had the best country in the world, in tennis, that's perfect because we don't have a Davis Cup. I mean, there's such a discrepancy between the women and the men in certain countries. For example, uh, I like the United States of America at, at this moment, I guess. But I think that's a brilliant idea, actually. Wow. Yeah, a team event I love. Co-ed, I love even more. So, Andy, yeah. All right, let's 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 move forward on it. All right, let's look back on on '88 a little bit, and and I'm going to ask you guys some trivia questions to see if you can even remember back as to what happened back in those days, not just on the tennis court, but who remembers who the top golfers were in the world in 1988? Matt, I'm going to start with you on that one. Nick Faldo. No, actually, he was not. It uh, it shows up for me as when I did my homework as the top two golfers. Co-number ones were Greg Norman and Seve Ballesteros in 1988. Johnny, the number one television show in America in 1988. Best television show in 88. This was the year that I believe you made the quarterfinals of the French and U.S. Opens with Eric Carita in doubles, correct? That was 88? That was 88. Okay, so top show at the time. And you're Googling it right now. I can see it. So don't do No, that. I'm actually I'm watching I'm actually you on your not, phone. You're I'm actually looking, Googling it. Matt. I'm actually looking. That? No, I'm actually looking up 1988. It was either 87 or 88 when I played in Seoul, oh. the tournament that they had there, okay. the ATP event. And they had just finished the stadium where they were going to play the tennis. And I lost to Andre Agassi in the first round of the event. Okay. He got some revenge for me beating him a few years prior in a satellite when he first turned pro. So that's what I was Googling. Okay. I didn't know if it was 87 or 88, but I will tell you <laughs> the top show of 88. I would guess that it might be the Wonder Years. All right, close. It was the Cosby Show, uh, which is rather – and we could have a whole other segment <laughs> on that right now. Um, number one song was Man in the Mirror. Number one tennis player in the world, 1988. Mats Philander, of course. Because we mentioned it several times per show. We have to. It's in the contract. But the Olympics, they did not have a bronze medal match. So in the men's and the women's singles, there were two bronze medals. Who remembers who won the gold in 88? I do, but it's too easy for me. Johnny. Mature? Mature won it. Yeah. 
Very good. Gilbert maybe got a bronze that year. Gilbert got a bronze along with Stefan Edberg. Correct. And the and the silver medal went to, shockingly. Maybe not shockingly then. Tim Mayot. Yes, sir. Tim Mayot. Wow. Who won the gold in the doubles? Uh wow. Black and Seguso. Correct. Yeah. Yes. All right, so now let's go over to the women's side. Obviously, we know who won the Golden Slam. Who did Steffi Graf beat in that final, and who would have won the silver medal on the women's side? Arancha Sanchez-Vicario. Arancha Sanchez-Vicario. Okay, Mats, you agree or disagree with that? Um, I uh, – no, I have to disagree, but I don't have a guess. All right, you don't have a guess. You disagree, and you'd be correct because Sanchez Vicario did not medal. The your silver medalist was the lovely Gabriella Sabatini. All right. And your bronze medalists were, and Johnny's looking clearly, Matt. So I'm going to give you. Are you looking, Johnny, or not? Admit it. Nope. He's not. Absolutely not. All right. So phone is right here. You're, you're, Here's the phone. Your bronze. See the phone. Right I see there? it. I see it. The, our listeners don't, but I do. Anybody. Uh, bronze medalist, uh, Natasha Zvereva. Natasha Zvereva. I, I'm not sure she was born yet. So, but actually, no, she was because it was her doubles partner, Manuela Maleva. Okay. Got one of the bronzes along with Johnny, our girl, particularly mine from Houston, Texas. Oh, Zena Garrison. Yep. Yeah. Zena won, right. won the bronze. That's a, that's a great effort there. And the gold medal in doubles went to... Lauren McNeil, Zena Garrison. Zena Garrison and Pam Shriver. Ooh. So there wow. you go. There you go. And some of the other great performances in those Olympics. Carl Lewis obviously had an amazing Olympics. Janet Evans, Greg Luganis. And, of course, you may not remember, but the U.S. basketball team, not unlike this year, disgraced the United States that year, Johnny, by only winning the bronze. In similar fashion to your Phoenix Suns this year, spitting up the bit when they should, for all intents and purposes, have won the NBA title, having gone up to love, only for Chris Paul to choke away yet another 2-0 lead in a series. But that's not <laughs> what the show's about. So, United States basketball wins bronze, while uh, while the United States doubles wins wins gold in in in, uh, in both men's and women's. So there you go. So the dream team, what year was that? Let me just ask as a dumb Swedish. That is that is exactly what that is because that was nineteen ninety two in okay. Barcelona. Yeah. And uh, and that's still to this day the, the greatest team that's ever been assembled and one of the great stories of all time. Now I I guess the timing of the Olympics must be different now than it was then because what you're saying is you won the open prior to choosing not to play the Olympics when clearly right now the Olympics are going on and the U.S. Open follows. So were the Olympics later or? Yeah, I'm not sure why. I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know if, if you guys know the answer to this, but is the Olympics always the same date? I don't think it is. I think it's, it's, it is that year because it does come down to where is it being held? And that's what I think. Like there, right? So, because, yeah, Johnny, be. I feel like Matt's is is – is misremembering. I really, truly do. I think he chose not to play in the Olympics to not jeopardize being fresh for the U.S. Open, but he would probably know better than me. Well, it was after. It was okay. after the U.S. Open. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course yeah. he knows. <laughs> Olympics is after the U.S. Open, of course. I was in Bermuda during the Olympics. I know that, too. When we come back on Tennis Channel Podcast Network's kickserveradio.com, there are a couple of more Olympic stories and Olympic ideas that I want to toss around. So stay with us because there's I want to get under the hood with this a little bit more. Matt Svelander's clearly got plenty to say about it. Johnny, you've played in the Pan Am games and been a part of several successful teams. I want to hear more from you as well. So don't go away. More on the Olympics and tennis as a team sport when we come back right after this. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There's so many new communication platforms and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media, but why Squad Pod? Squad Pod was built on privacy. 
So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the chuckus, and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So we're used a lot, and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids being kids, but also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players. So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by Squad Pod. Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with Squad Pod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team. Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. As you know, we are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we're talking Olympic tennis. And I want to start with you, Johnny, because um, I know you won a gold medal in something at, with Brad Gilbert. I believe it was the Maccabea Games. And I want to know what the feeling of having a gold medal placed around your neck is, be it an Olympic gold medal or a Pan Am Games or Maccabea Games. Did you have a ceremony where they played the national anthem and you got a medal around your neck. Did did you experience that? I actually did. Two of the greatest moments in my career, believe it or not, was winning a gold at both Pan American and the Maccabee games in Israel or whatever Maccabee, you could do either one, but the uh, Pan American games, I remember vividly, I played with Eric Corita and we played Pascal Perez and Jorge Lozano in the font, not maybe it wasn't Lozano actually. Um, I think it was in so the final. It was finals. very special. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was, it was Lozano, but um, it was 12 10 in the third. It was a crazy, wow. crazy match. Yeah, it was wild. You know, I remember winning it and they did do a podium type ceremony on the court after, and it was, you know, the anthem and it was just. It was crazy. I mean, uh, I can't even imagine what it would be like at the Olympics, but this was really special. And and um, same thing at uh, in Israel. I mean, me and me and Brad Gilbert in our semifinal match, we played Brian Levine and David Edgis. Oh, and that was like a 12, 10 and a third. It might have been the quarters, but it just added to the whole excitement of it to win those kind of long matches and really tight matches. And I just really have amazingly fond memories of those, those and representing, you know, your country and you have that, you know, all in the team uniform and you get that medal around your neck and they're playing the anthem. There's nothing better. I think it, it, and I'm sure Matt, you, you had that experience at the, you know, playing Davis cup. I and mean, whenever you play for your country, there's just that, it's just really special. Well, and let's, let's toss this back over Johnny to Matt's because, you know, we, we've kind of glossed over the fact that when Roger Federer, chose not to go to the Olympics, it was a big deal. When Rafael Nadal this year chose not to go to the Olympics, it was a big deal. You can't tell me that when the decision was made for the number one player in the world in 1988, who had just won three majors, to make the decision not to go to the Olympics, a guy that had taken so much pride in playing for his country and winning three Davis Cup championships, didn't go to the Olympics, that there wasn't a story behind that, that there wasn't a little bit of maybe even an uproar about it, Matt. What did you hear from the Stefan Edbergs of the world and maybe even the Bjorn Borgs of the world when you made this decision? How well did this go over with those guys? No, it's actually the opposite, Andy. There was an uproar from the players to not go to the Olympics. So if you look at the draw, there's no Ivan Lendl, 
Uh, there's no Boris Becker. There, oh. None of the guys went. Yeah, none of the guys went. And we had the same problem then as they're facing today. Make the Olympics worth something or we're not going because you just, you, you're just trying to put tennis in there so that tennis feels like we're part of the Yeah, good. But no, you have to commit to it uh, as a sport, not to players. The organizations, they need to respect the Olympics for what it is. And to this point, we're obviously not doing that by scheduling two other tournaments on the ATP Tour the same week. First thing. Uh, and I don't know how you do it, but somehow you got to make it more attractive to the players. The scheduling is very, very difficult, obviously, uh, for the players. But um, you, you have to do something. And it's, they have the same problem today as they did in, uh, in 1988. The best players are not going. Of course, Novak is there to win the Golden Slams, or at least try. But, uh, I, you know, it, it's, uh, so far, it's limping along. Having said that, I think if you stay in there for another 20, 30 years, eventually tennis will be uh, a, a part of the Olympics, will be part of the tennis calendar. And it's what everybody looks forward to as much or more than the majors because it only happen every, happens every four years. So I think that we, they need to stick with it. But at the moment, they're not, they're not hitting a home run. Uh, I have neither the International Tennis Federation or the ATP in my, or the WTA, for that matter, uh, in my book. In 88, Graf was the number one seed, obviously having won all four majors. Chris Everett, the number two seed, she was upset early in the draw by Raffaella Reggie from Italy. So you did have a little bit more star power, maybe on the women's side, maybe the WTA tour took um, a more valued view of the Olympics than the ATP tour did. Is that safe to say? Or well, Chrissy, I actually spoke to Chrissy not long ago uh, because we, uh, we, she was on our show for Eurosport and she said she wanted to go to the Olympics because she's never been. She wasn't allowed to go before because tennis wasn't part of it. And she just wanted to get the feeling of the Olympic Village. And she actually said, and look at my result. I didn't do very well. So, I mean, what an insult to the Olympics, an insult to the other sports to not have our best players wanting to play the Olympics. I just don't, it's not, not right. Okay, fair enough. All right, let's turn, Johnny, our attention to the tour since it is still going on as, as Matt's has made it quite clear we've got other events going on and we've just come off of a week and you've been really good since the inception of the show in making sure that we keep up with some of the younger players that are the up-and-comers because we all get asked the question, who are the next great American players? I think we've all decided that we really like what we're seeing from Sebastian Corda and we're hoping to be able to bring him on the show soon. Uh, But we've got some other young players, uh, Brandon Nakashima recently, just this last week, uh, made the finals of the event. I believe it was down in Acapulco, wasn't it? Losing to Cameron Nori. In Cabo. Oh, it was Cabo. Okay, correct. And uh, Alcarez, Johnny, um, talk about him. Well, Alcarez is an 18-year-old from Spain that just won his first uh, ATP event, and he has been compared to Nadal that he is the the next up and coming Nadal. And he's the youngest player to win an ATP event since I think Nisha Corey did in 2009. We do need to, to uh, mention Jensen Brooksby who finaled an ATP event 250 in Newport, who uh, he had a a great run there ending up losing to Kevin Anderson, who, who made a comeback and, and, and won that tournament. So Jensen Brooksby doesn't have necessarily the prettiest game, but boy, that, that guy is on a win streak. He's won a number of challengers and he's qualified, I believe, at Wimbledon. I think he lost first round. He's, he's almost in the top 100 now. He's at 112. But this Alcaraz kid is now 55 in the world. And he is, he is really a guy that is looking to for big things. And I think he, he's going to end up being in the top 20 very soon. Yeah, I got a question for for you, Andy. Okay. What do you think uh, uh, having a uh, Brandon Nakashima, right? Yes. Uh, and Brooksby and Alcaraz. What does it do to the American college system when you have seventeen and eighteen year olds suddenly? And I would like to answer, ask that question too. First of all, why are they able to do to start winning now and do well at seventeen, eighteen years old, whereas the the previous generation? Yes, with Tsitsipas, they were good. And the one before it were not at all. 
because we thought they were too young. So why is it happening now? Are these stronger at 17, 18 than the, the previous couple of generations? And then also, what does it do to the American college system when you see the 17, 18-year-olds do really well? And then suddenly, do you think college is the right way to go if you're a, a tennis pro? or not if you want to continue as a pro are you losing too many invaluable years i i'll start with it i mean i i think in johnny's case watching johnny and i'll, I'll you know i'll let johnny speak for himself but watching johnny come in i felt that the college game did him a lot of good for a couple of years just because of the maturation process as a person you know johnny came in as 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 a very poised mature beyond his years guy on the tennis court, but maybe that didn't necessarily differentiate him from the rest of the people on campus at the university of Texas off the court. So I think there were some, um, you know, social developmental things and, and, and things that I think allowed Johnny to um, become a 20 year old, a 21 year old before turning pro like you did, obviously Matt's as young as you did. So I think that's a case by case basis is that different kids mature, on different trajectories um, and have different developmental journeys. And I think that there's a little bit of a cyclical nature of the college game. And I kind of talked to Dick Gould about this. I think we did, which is that, you know, when you looked at the, the era, Johnny, just before yours, when you have guys like Kevin Curran and John McEnroe playing each other, you know, in college tennis, and you see how amazing these guys were and that they both became, well, McEnroe in his case, one in the world. Kern probably got to four or five in the world, uh, a Wimbledon final. And and then you kind of have these lulls where you have these guys like maybe a Stevie Johnson who dominates college tennis, doesn't lose a match for two years, wins four national championships. Paul Goldstein, four national championships. Don't get me wrong. Love Stevie Johnson. Love Paul Goldstein. Well, what did they really do on the pro tour? They had nice, respectable careers, but they're not semiing or finaling majors. So I think it's very cyclical, Matt, and it just seems like there's no scientific reason for why. Yeah, I think I think personally, Andy, that it, it does have to do with the individual player. I mean, a guy like Jensen Brooksby played at one semester, I think, at Baylor. And, um, you know, I believe that if a guy really wants the best opportunity to be a pro, he needs to get out there as soon as possible. If he's got the talent and if he's got the right coaching, a guy like Corda has that. And I believe Brooksby has a good team around him as well. I think if you don't have that, you do need to go to college and shore up your game and you get the maturity out of it. I think it's great. But if you really have the potential to make it in the game. The sooner you get out there, your chances of making it, I just think you got to get out there and all the European guys are out there. The sooner you get out there, the better it is if you have the potential to make it. I mean, Matt, you would really know, but I mean, having watched the whole thing from the time that you did what you did in 1982, coming out as a spry 17 year old and, and winning in your first you know, major main draw and going the distance and beating Guillermo Vilas and beating Yvonne Lendl and Vitas Girolaitis at age 17, it's unheard of. Are there some cases where you'd be working with a kid and I and, and you might say, I think college is the decision for you to eventually land you in a, a stable pro career or would you always counsel them to go straight in? No, I, I agree with both of you. I mean, I kind of uh, – was guessing you were going to answer that. I think it's very individual, but I also think that it's you must never overlook who is the coach at the college you're going to. What is that coach's mindset? Is he, is he getting you there for the team's sake to win, to win a championship or is he get, is he getting you there because he thinks he can improve your tennis? And, and then, so I think it's really important to go where the coach has a, a, a long-term view, not just win the championship singles, doubles team, whatever, but actually, I'm going to make you a better player. And if you win a championship, it's kind of uh, it's, it's irrelevant. Um, you're here because I believe I can make you a better player. I think that part is really, really important. Obviously, you guys know that much better than me. Uh, Jimmy Arias didn't go to college my age, did great in the Pro Tour. Aaron Crickstein, same thing, a couple of years younger than me. Uh, so it was down there. And when I, when, when I ended up playing against somebody my age that had just come out of college and I'm 22 – uh, and they're coming out, I did feel like, whoa, okay, well, I have about, let's see, 
50, I got about 200 pro matches under my belt here and you're coming in uh, and it's kind of like, I'm telling myself, there is no way I am losing to you. You just came through college. So I think that part uh, is not easy to overcome when you come out of college. But again, I think it has to do with coaching. I think it has to do with team spirit as well. The friends you make, that's your safety net when you come out of college. I really think that the player has to be realistic and, and understand their potential too, because if, if a kid is, you know, a top junior, you know, your game and you know, the level that you can you potentially get to. And, and there's a lot of guys that, that go, that might go out too early and lose the opportunity to go through some of the greatest years of a person's life, which is college for me, or even Jimmy Brown, let's take a guy like Jimmy Brown who Matt's I'm sure knows he, he won I a lot of the juniors. Yeah. He's a great guy. He won all the yeah. juniors. I mean, here's a guy that he wanted no part of college tennis. He wanted to just go grind it out over in Europe. And, and, and he was made to do that. And he, he never really got, I don't think too much higher than 50 in the world, but, but for him, it worked, you know, but it's the guys that, that flounder, you know, if you're, if you're leaving and you're not going to college and you're a guy that's, you know, doesn't make it, past, you know, under 100 in the world. I think that's that's where you're going to have regrets that you didn't go to college. So I think it's 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 being realistic and understanding your potential because college is really something that, you know, it, it's different going to college when you're 18 than, than going back later for your degree. So I wouldn't trade anything for my college years. And I just would hate to see young guys be unrealistic turn pro and lose out on that college experience how about trade me how about if i trade your french open johnny i'll take your edu- i take a couple of years of your education you have one of my french opens done <laughs> done i'll take that french <laughs> i will too i'll take Not it even for, close. i'll take it for him absolutely well and you know one guy that we haven't mentioned who who actually made great use of the college years uh, is one of your best friends, Matts, and we talked about John Isner at the University of Georgia, but his predecessor is one Mikhail Pernforce, who you know very well, Johnny. You guys had a, a hell of a go of it in the semifinals in Athens, in Georgia, in 1984. Or was it 83? Yeah, 84. 84. And Pernforce would win back-to-back NCAA championships and get to 11 in the world. He would never made it. Otherwise, would have never made it had he not gone to college. Is that what you're saying? No chance. What did he say about that experience, Matt? I mean, he didn't even go to college. I think he went to college to just get away from Sweden. Okay. I mean, he was, he played <laughs> national championships in doubles. He was really talented. But we, I heard he was playing college. Wow. And then he's coming out on the pro tour. Are you kidding me? And then, wow, he was an unbelievable player who took much longer to develop his love for the game and to understand all the talent that he possessed to put it together in an effective game plan. I think that's the other thing that college does to you. It made Mikael Pernfors work really hard, physically, I'm sure, but emotionally, that he felt this part of a team that he, uh, you know, he, he has to pull his, uh, pull his chair, so to speak. And, um, yeah, I think college can really help. Uh, I think college helps most people. But there are some certain talents where you need to get them out, like Johnny said, for sure. When we come back, who are the storylines? Who are the people that we're looking to see do special things into this hard court season that will culminate with the U.S. Open? We know what Novak Djokovic is trying to do. That's clearly a storyline. But who's the next breakthrough guy? Who's the next Matteo Berrettini, if you will? I know these guys are going to have some thoughts on that. You're listening to Tennis Channel Podcast Network's KickServeRadio.com, AZ, Mats, and Johnny, with what to look for over the course of the balance of this summer when we come back right after this. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's Vlander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. 
They also have martial arts and something I have never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with Matt is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Matt, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to mattsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody. Tennis Channel Podcast Network's KickServeRadio.com, AZ, Matt, and Johnny, and... Guys, before we get into what I sort of teased on the way out of the last segment about what to look for, one of the things that we didn't get around discussing with all of this Olympic talk was the decision for the Japanese to go with Naomi Osaka to light the Olympic torch. I mean, that's really, truly one of the greatest honors that can be bestowed upon an athlete, and I'll never forget watching Muhammad Ali stand there with that torch in his hand, shaking in Atlanta in 1996. One of the most iconic lightings of the torch in the history of the Olympics. And here they they give that to Osaka, which really wouldn't be so, call it controversial, or maybe a little bit surprising, had it not been for recent developments with her withdrawing from the French Open after threatening to boycott, dealing with the media, and then pulling out of Wimbledon and causing a little bit of a stir within the tour and all the major championships, talking about potentially censuring her and all the different things that are going on. Matt, did you think that that was a worthy choice, having Naomi Osaka light the Olympic torch? Um, well, I mean, I'm not familiar with all the uh, Japanese athletes. I mean, obviously, Shigeki Matsuyama won the Masters, but that, that's only one major uh, Naomi Osaka has won four majors. Um, she got to number one in the world. So, yeah, I think it's a valid um, – yeah, I think she's, she's the right candidate for sure uh, in terms of what I know about Japanese uh, sports. But, but at the same time, you just wonder, you know, how long can this, this thing keep going on with Naomi Osaka being on the, on the cover of Time magazine and, and there was another one and then talking about that same thing about – having, you know, the media is tough on you when you're not playing well. Uh, and then suddenly you, you do this, you go home and you're like, I mean, clearly she's not doing all this because of her tennis. I mean, it's not good for her tennis. It can't be because she's going to, she's going to be asked these questions. So clearly there's somebody there that doesn't worry about Naomi Osaka's tennis. Cause if they are, then she's just doing exactly what she says she can't handle. So that doesn't make any sense to me at all. So the tennis her tennis is not what's the most important at the moment. That's for sure. Whether that's her choice or her manager's choice, I'm not sure. But uh, uh, it's clearly not done because she's going to be a better tennis player. Johnny, her father's Haitian. Her mother's Japanese. She's lived most of her life in the United States. I mean, is she really as pure a Japanese athlete as you would expect to light the torch? Or does that even matter? Well, obviously, she she qualifies to be Japanese because of her mother. So she's Japanese. Um, And and her choice was to represent Japan. Um, I think you have to give her that. And um, like you said, I mean, what a what an incredible honor to to light the torch at the Olympics. Um, Yeah, I think she totally deserves to uh, to represent uh, Japan and light that torch. There you go. All right, boys, let's move on because we've got a hard court season that's going to be upon us faster than normal because we are dealing with the Olympics right now. And suddenly we're going to come from these Olympic Games and it's going to be, you know, Cincinnati's going to be breathing down our throat and some of the other, you know, the, the, the Rogers Cup in Canada and some of the big hard court events that are lead ins to the U.S. Open. And I guess, Matt's, you know, we saw Matteo Berrettini make a big splash uh, making that final and he has been really consistently, 
you know, getting deep into these draws, and he has really established himself as a force to be reckoned with. And speaking of the Canadian Open, the Canadian players are are, are doing awfully well. Felix Ajay Eliassimi, but even more so, semiing Wimbledon, Denis Shapovalov is a guy that we have really kind of had our hopes up for because we love his game. I think most people really like him as a kid. Is is this maybe the next guy to kind of keep your eye on with regard to uh, potentially being able to show up in the same spot that Berrettini showed up in at Wimbledon? Uh, Denis Shapovalov definitely has the qualities uh, physically. I think he show, showed in Wimbledon in the semis against Novak that he has the qualities uh, in terms of wanting it really badly, because obviously when you walk off the Wimbledon Senate court and you have just lost in three straight sets, uh, most probably should have won one or, or two of those sets and then drop your bag in the middle of the service box and uh, and start sort of have tears in your eyes and you're thanking the crowd. Uh, that tells me that that it means that obviously means a lot to him. Question is, does it mean, mean too much to him uh, to win or lose tennis matches where he sometimes gets in his own way because it's maybe a little bit too uh, frantic or too risky, busy, whatever the word is. I think he's going to mature tremendously. Johnny, before I go to you, I want to call out one thing. You know, when they when they air the commercial for the Tennis Channel Podcast Network and they have a little clip from all the shows, the clip that they use from our show is the one that Matt's has about Stefanos Tsitsipas being absolutely obsessed with winning tennis matches. And I don't know that I see that from the other guys, I believe is the quote. But now it sounds like you're saying that maybe that same obsession or something similar from Denis Shapovalov may not be channeled or processed as positively in Shapovalov as it is in Tsitsipas. Am I, am I hearing that correctly? Uh, Andy, you're hearing me absolutely correct. And I think that it's a mature, maturing process. And I think Tsitsipas is very mature for his age. I think Denis Shapovalov uh, is very mature physically for his age. But I think emotionally, um, he hasn't been there enough. And I think that his game is still a little bit wild. He hasn't quite uh, decided, uh, is he running around hitting as many forehands as possible? Is he coming over the backhand every time? Does he hit the backhand while both feet are in the air? If you watch Tsitsipas, it's very clear what he's doing. He wants to hit as many forehands as possible. He wants to take the ball as early as he can without rushing himself, and he wants to get forwards, come to the net, and that's on every single surface. So I think that Shapovalov has that same, uh, I just don't know uh, emotionally if he has the same kind of stability that Stefanos Tsitsipas seems to have. Johnny, I want to turn to you, and there are three guys that have been on these trajectories towards stardom and and, and world championship caliber play, uh, and, and now it seems like they've at times been a little bit derailed, and I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on, on whether or not Daniil Medvedev, Dominic Thiem, and Sasha Zverev are going to continue moving toward you know, the winner circle in these major championships. And of the three, who do you think is really starting to veer off course? And, and of the three, who do you think is, is moving in the best direction? Well, I look, it's, it's a pass. We all are thinking could be the next champion. Um, the depth of men's tennis is, is really off the charts. I mean, you look at Sitsipas a pass comes, I know he had the great result at the French and then he comes back and, you know, at Wimbledon, he loses to TFO. Um, and then you look at Shapovalov, who gets to the semifinals of Wimbledon. And then he goes to clay courts. He's playing in Bastad, or Gestad, I'm sorry, in the Swiss Open and loses in the second round to a guy 249 in the world. This just shows you the depth of men's tennis. And at any time, these guys can lose and they have to be right mentally. They have to be right physically. You have to look at the top three, the, the, the big three, and how few times they were upset in, in their careers. And that's the big thing. It's the consistency. I think when you look at Sitsipas, you look at Zverev and Medvedev, it's, it's can they beat Djokovic? Can they beat Nadal? Yes, but are they going to lose to the guys that are 20, 30, and 40? I think that's almost more important that they they hold their own on the guys that they're supposed to beat because they can beat the top three guys. It's about consistency. 
And that's where the big three, we've never seen anything like it. There, the, the, the men's tennis is so deep um, that I think the ones that are going to come out of this and end up, you know, overtaking Djokovic, which, which, which I don't think is going to be soon, are going to be the ones that don't lose the matches that they're supposed to win. I guess, Matt's what I'm what I'm looking for here is, you know, you see a guy like Joe Willie Songa, for instance, who made an appearance in an Australian final. Unfortunately for him, it would be the day that Novak Djokovic would win his first ever major. And I don't think we ever saw Songa in a major final again. We did see him beat Federer at Wimbledon, I believe, in the round of 16 or the quarters one time. And we saw him be one of these guys that looked like he was on the verge. Guy Feast was another guy that had moments of brilliance. And you wonder if we're not maybe seeing, you know, we've seen it from Dimitrov where he was on the verge of, of doing some things that seemed major championship caliber worthy. And, and now Medvedev seemed like he was right there, particularly with that, that final that he played against Rafa at the U.S. Open. Uh, and, and Zverev has had, had tremendous wins beating Nadal on clay. Team won a major, but those three in particular have me scratching my head right now. Yeah, I think I'm, I could completely agree with you about Dominic Thiem. Uh, I hope he comes back because I love, uh, he's a nice guy. He's got a great game. Very worried about him. Uh, but he's won a major. So that could go down as a great career. Grigor Dimitrov got clearly beaten up too many times by the, by the big three and maybe even the big four, Andy Murray included. So he lost his confidence and realized that, well, I'm never going to be as good as Roger Federer. I play the same way uh, is what everybody called him, baby fed for. And he realized that. I think Medvedev and Sasha Sverev, they're still young enough where I think that they have somebody smart next to them or in their team or even themselves go, okay, Daniel or Sasha, let me just hang on here for another two years. I'm going to work as hard as I can. And they will arrive when there is no Federer, there's no Nadal, and there is no Djokovic. And suddenly there is Medvedev at... 27 years old, 28 years old, Sasha Zverev, same, same age, one year younger, I believe. And if they just can hold on to that patience and work hard, uh, I think that they will uh, have great careers. But uh, it's about patience. I remember Ivan Lendl telling me uh, when uh, Sasha Zverev won at the 0-2 arena, and I believe it beat all three, the big three in, the, in that tournament. He beat Djokovic badly in the finals. And I'm like, wow, Ivan, he's playing great. He says, yeah, he played good today. But this is going to take 18 more months to get him where he needs to be. And he still isn't there, but uh, I think he's making improvements. So I wouldn't worry about Sverev and Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Berrettini, those guys. Uh, Dominic Team, yes, I'm very worried about Dominic Team's uh, future in tennis. Johnny, a guy that we've all considered to be off the charts talented and a guy that if he ever got his head right would win majors you look up you remember this guy beating the doll at Wimbledon at age 19 and suddenly Johnny Nick Kyrgios is 26 years old and we saw Bjorn Borg as Matt's made mention of a couple of times in our previous show retire at 24 if Nick Kyrgios isn't careful is time going to get away from him and, and he's going to have tremendous regret that he didn't put a little bit more into what could have been uh, a, an amazing career based on the talent level. Or do you think he's just going to look back and go, I did it my way and I'm fine? I think he'll feel that he did it his way and he's fine. I mean, that's just the way he is. And I think that, uh, um, you know, the less he plays, the better he's going to be when he does play. Because when he plays too much, he gets too aggravated. He gets burned out. He gets pissed off. You see great results from the guy. He plays really good tennis in a year that with the pandemic and he didn't play much. He comes out, he plays good. The problem is, is that, you know, he, he's not in the, the, the match condition um, and his body's broken down a little bit. Um, but he, he, he had a great Wimbledon. I mean, the guy is so capable of big things and he's such an entertainer. I sure hope he keeps his mind good enough to, to have a long career, it, it's, you know, that's up in the air. Cause I just don't know how much he loves tennis, but Andy, I'm ready to talk about a few up and comers when you are. So, so I'll, I'll wait till you you're ready. We can definitely talk about some up and comers. And I want to start with, with Matt's on just one quick question before we, and, and that's these guys are in sort of the middle of the pack that I think are 
both ready to break out. Um, and I'm curious as to who Matt thinks might might be more likely to show up in a slam final between Karen Hotchinoff and Hubert Hercotch. I mean, we saw them both play great tennis at Wimbledon, and we see m- massive games from both of them. Hercotch, gosh, given Roger Federer the only bagel that he's ever taken at Wimbledon, and it would be so sad to see Roger never show up again at Wimbledon and know that the last match that he ever played ended in a bagel uh, and not in his favor. What about those two? Well, I think that Karen Khachanov will make more quarterfinals in majors than Hubert Hurkacz, uh, but Hurkacz has a much better chance of making a Grand Slam final. Okay. I think Hurkacz has an upside to his game that's a huge serve, good hands, a uh, little bit awkward uh, in his game, a little bit different uh, the way he moves on the court, the way he even walks on the court looks different. So it's a, it's a different situation. Karen Khachanov is basically your... Uh, really, 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 really good journeyman uh, on tour, I think. He's solid. He can play on any surface. He's got a pretty big serve. He's got a very good forehand for the grip that he uses. Unbelievable backhand. Good attitude. Doesn't get tired. Um, is missing a little bit of the intangible to me. Like, he can't, doesn't really feel comfortable at the net. Uh, he doesn't have the intimidating uh, figure on the court, even though he's big. Emotionally, he doesn't really bring it on enough. Uh, like a Denis Shapovalov or Stefano Tsitsipas. But I think he, you know, he's going to make fourth round quarterfinals. That's, that should be his goal. Like Johnny said, I mean, to me, consistency is what's going to win you majors in the end. But you have to have a bit of a, a, an upside that's a little bit more dangerous and maybe even natural talent has to be a little more part of your game than that what Karen Hachano has. But I love him as a pro. And I think if you uh, were a betting man, yeah, Hachanov is seeded 11. Yeah, he's going to reach the fourth round, might get to the quarters. Hurkacz, I have no idea. He could easily get to a slam final, but he will lose in early uh, first round, second round in a, in a lot of tournaments as well. Johnny, I know you've been uh, getting ready for the, the up-and-comer segment, so let's talk about going into this hardcourt season. Who are some of the guys that might be outside – of the radar of the casual tennis fan who you think we should have our eyes on. And you might look up and all of a sudden you see a guy that you haven't heard of. That's suddenly in the quarterfinals of Cincinnati or, or, or possibly better. One player that is playing very good tennis and he just won Cabo is Cam Nori, not a humongous game, but a consistent player doesn't make unforced errors. Very solid off the ground. Very good mentally. He's now top 30 in the world. How much higher he can get, I don't know. And real quickly, Johnny, Cam Norrie, um, just for what it's worth, since we were talking about it earlier, played at TCU. TCU, so that's played, right. Played in the right. 12. You, you had some great matches against David Pate playing against TCU. So a good college career there. And uh, a nice goal of it against Federer at Wimbledon this year, as I recall. Yeah, no, he's a solid player. Um, you, you you know, I like to go back to Matt's favorite Um Yannick Sinner at 23 in the world right now, he could be that, that guy. I mean, he could be the next guy. We we're, He's just kind of sitting in the wings. He's just on the cusp of greatness, and I think we have to watch him. And then, and then Sebastian Corda, he's now 47 in the world, and I think that this guy could make a huge breakthrough. You know, this guy could get to the quarters, maybe a semi at, at the U.S. Open. It's, it's not uh, unheard of for him to do that, so – those three guys, and then I know Alcaraz is a clay quarter, but he's at 55 and 18 years old. Those guys are, are, are playing really good. And then Christian Rude. Casper Rude. I'm sorry, Casper Rude, the dad is Christian, is now, I think, 13 or 14 in the world. So he's a guy that, I mean, how, how much higher can he go, Mats? I mean, could he do something at the U.S. Open? That's another one. So th- those are kind of my picks right now, and I think uh, – those are definitely guys to watch for that uh, that uh, could be next the next great ones. Yeah, I just saw Kasparud uh, play uh, a couple of weeks ago at the Swedish Open, uh, and uh, he was seeded one. He won the tournament easily, and I think he has really done uh, what you were talking about, Johnny. He has separated himself. He's not losing to guys that are ranked uh, lower than him or worse than him, I should say. Uh, he's made that step. He's made that commitment. And I think that's why he's going to be there in the third round, fourth round quarters of the next, uh, I don't know, 
20 slams, I think he's going to get to his seed most of the time. Uh, he's a very, very, has a very good attitude. Really good on clay, decent on hardcore. We can't close out the show without talking a little women's tennis tonight. And I'm going to talk about a couple of girls named Coco. One of which will start with Vandaway, Johnny, because our former teammate Craig Carden is back with Coco Vandaway, and she is back out on tour. And do you have any optimism that we would ever see her return to the form that got her to the semifinals of the Australian Open, the semifinals of the U.S. Open, when she had cracked the top ten and looked like she was going to be a force to be be reckoned with before, unfortunately, um, experiencing you know, the injury bug. Now she's back out there and winning some matches, had a win over Tomjanovic recently. Coco Vandaway, what are your hopes for her going forward? Yeah, I think she, you know, she can definitely get hot out there and, and play great tennis. I think she has had a couple of recent results that are, that are positive. And I think even last summer, she did really well in team tennis um, and, and, and I think won it for her team at the end. And so she, she's really capable. I mean, she's got a huge game. I think for, for Coco, it comes down to the, to the mental side, which it does obviously for a lot of players, but she's got big talent. And if she's right mentally, big things can happen. It's just that the women's game just keeps getting better and better and there's more competition and there's more players. And so it's, it's not going to get any easier for, um, uh, but but she you know she's not finished that's for sure and and hopefully she can come back to her her old form where she she had big results and obviously we always root for for folks that are attached to people like Craig Harden who's a dear friend of ours and going to the other Coco of the world match Coco Goff and we talked about it throughout the clay court season where we really saw lots of grinding and that grinding it was almost like watching the polishing of a diamond the way you would grind on a, on a, on a, on a, on a precious stone that it felt like watching her have to earn every single point of every single game of every single set throughout that clay court season. When I started to mention that you started smiling as if to say, you're right. This grinding process is going to go a lot further toward maturing her to potentially eventually win a major championship than if it was going to be too easy, too early. Yeah, I think she's going to find a great consistency um, because her attitude with grinding and not making mistakes, I think you, she tough, you toughen up your attitude. Uh, I mean, even the great Roger Federer uh, toughened up his attitude uh, eventually. He didn't have a good one in the early in his career, and then suddenly he got tough, and then with that toughness comes consistency. And I think that's what Coco Goff needs. I think she needs to win tennis matches with her legs and with her mind as a young player, and then will polish uh, the forehand and the backhand and the serve along the way. But she needs to separate herself up here in the mind from other 17, 18, 19-year-olds and say, listen, I need this. I need to win matches. I need to win Grand Slams, and I'm not going away. I'm not giving you one single point for free. I like that approach rather than the big-hitting sort of approach that maybe, for example, as we're talking about her, Coco Vandeweghe had a little bit of big hitter, very talented. And to me, Coco Vandeweghe, I think she found out that, oh, talent uh, and, and technique can take me this far. So I know that now. It seems like it should be easy for her to say, okay, I know I got the talent. I got the good technique. Now I just need to work harder, both mentally, emotionally, and physically, because I know I got the game. It seems like that should be an easy path to follow or to find. But then you look at Nick Curious and clearly he hasn't found that path and he doesn't really try to find the path. And he wants to be the player that people can relate to uh, the normal man. So I'm not sure uh, where to put Coco Vandeve or uh, Coco Goff. I know is going to be a great player. Now, is that going to make her the best in the world? Not sure about that, but she'll be the best she can be. Well, in future shows, we've got to get caught up with the likes of Jen Brady, who was in an Australian Open final this year. Sonia Kennan, who won the Australian Open and was in a French Open final, and and what's become of her and and some of the other women on the tour who have made a big splash and then suddenly leveled off a little bit. So we've got a lot more to get to in the next show. We are trying to get a hold of Sebi Corda. We would love to have him on the show. We know we've got our our ace in the hole, Matt's working on that. But for now... 
for Tennis Channel Podcast Network's KickServeRadio.com. I'm Andy Zoden, along with the great Matt Vlander, former seven-time major champion, number one in the world, two-time Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine. We appreciate you joining us. Enjoy the rest of the Olympics, and we'll look forward to catching up with all of you during the hardcore season.